All measures are dirty. Nothing is accurate. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay, wacky weather. Had some stuff I had to do this morning. Running behind. Time is short. Let's dig into Tuesday's Q&A. This comes from Brian. Brian with an I. Brian says, hi, Bill. Hi, Brian. He says, I just watched your video on the extreme hip flexion measures where the spine is a source of compensation that magnifies the hip ER range. I'm assuming that there's a similar explanation for the extreme IR range of motion. If so, can you unpack that for me? Brian, I would be very, very happy to unpack that. But let's talk about measures in general first and foremost. All measures are dirty. Nothing is accurate. So we, we have to respect that fact. I can honestly say that I probably never measured anyone um, accurately. But what I have become over time, so I've been doing this for 30 years, what I have become is reliable. So I'm very consistent with how I execute and, and have probably improved in the last 10 years even more so uh, because I paid a lot closer attention to how I, I do certain things. And we can talk about that at a later date, but there's like a shoulder flexion video on YouTube that might be of use to you in regards to, to how we have to control some of the things that we actually can control as we measure. But in general, let's just respect the fact that there's stuff going on underneath our measures. Now, um, when we see something that, that appears to be magnified. So when we talked about the, the hip external rotation video, um, a lot of that stuff gets blamed on laxity. Like people say, oh, you have overstretched ligaments, etc., and this is why we see these crazy measures. Well, that's just the failure of the structural reductionist model, not respecting the fact that there is shape change in the axial skeleton, there's reorientation of, of the sockets, and that promotes changes in the way that the, the, the measurements arise. So, so, so we have multiple influences. We've got, we've got a position, we've got connective tissue orientations, we've got muscle orientations that all influence these outcomes. And this crazy internal rotation measure is one of those as well. And, and so what you'll end up seeing, so if we looked at the average measure, remember we don't talk about norms, we talk about averages, we look at an average measure of hip internal rotation depending on what textbook you look at, it's gonna be somewhere around 40 degrees. But then you got that patient that walks in and you throw them on the table and you're measuring them, they go, oh my gosh, they have 60 degrees of hip internal rotation. You go, oh my goodness, that hip capsule is lax and it's usually not. So, so let's talk about what the orientation is that we're typically seeing under these circumstances. And then we can kind of, as you asked for, we will unpack this to a degree. So if I'm looking at, at the orientation of the acetabulum and, and if I look at the, the ligamentous structure of the hip has this cool little spiral kind of an, an orientation to it. And so the, the orientation in itself is if I try to turn this thing into internal rotation, it creates a constraint because it's already twisted in that direction to, to a certain degree. So this is the, one of the dirty little secrets about lower extremities is they're already twisted into internal rotation. That's why the dorsum of your foot is on top when it should be on the bottom. And so this is the twist. So if I try to twist this farther, I hit the constraint, but if I look at orientation of this anomaly, I can actually put this in a position where I actually untwist the orientation of the hip. And all I have to do is move it up and over top of that femur. So this is gonna be an anterior orientation. So I will have um, traditional extension of the lumbar spine on the side where you get the magnified measure. And so that's gonna take this pelvis forward and over top of the, of the, uh, the femur. And if I take it far enough, 
I'm going to start to pick up internal rotation because essentially what I'm doing is I'm untwisting the capsule and then I take my measurement and then that picks up all that laxity. It's not laxity, it's just slack in, in the capsule created by position. I take that up and then I hit the constraint somewhere about 60 because I'm using a dead guy zero position. So a nice representation that I can use is sort of this wringing out the towel concept. So if I look at the, the twisted towel as if this was the ligamentous structure of, of the hip, when I'm, when I'm moving my interrotation, it's already twisted, and so there's my constraint to interrotation. But if I reorient the pelvis where it's over top of the femur, and I actually start to untwist the towel first, then I have all of this slack that I can take up in the hip capsule, which is going to give me my magnified internal rotation. So remember that I have other internal rotation measures to compare against to make sure that I am dealing with this orientation problem. So for instance, if I lack hip traditional hip extension or, or adduction, so traditional hip extension and adduction are internal rotation measures. So if I have a deficit in either one of those, then I know that my magnified internal rotation measure is most likely associated with, with this orientation. Um, I also have my iterations to compare against as well, but here's the problem that you're gonna run into when you see somebody with this magnified hip internal rotation. Chances are when you lay them on the table, um, what you would typically see is a loss of hip external rotation associated with the anterior orientation. So your expectation is that the same side shoulder would have a loss of external rotation, but that rarely shows up in this circumstance. Because of the extreme orientation, because of the traditional extension and internal rotation of the lumbar spine, what happens is I get a thorax that would normally be tilted forward, but it falls backwards on the table. This actually magnifies the external rotation measures in traditional external rotation and flexion. So it can be a little bit confusing using if you don't have the awareness that the thorax can actually move as you lay them down on the table. So keep that in mind when you're making your comparisons of, of same side hip to same side shoulder. So Brian, in a nutshell, your strategy is to create the reorientation under these circumstances and not go to blaming laxity. Unless you have some scenario where it's going to be very, very clear that, that they have some form of condition that would actually promote this laxity. Use your comparative measures, understand that all your measurements are dirty, and we have to account for the position on the table. Brian, I hope that answers your question for you. If it doesn't, um, please ask another question at askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys. So we can't look at this guy as mm -hmm. an average human being because he is not. The, the gods, right. as they say in the movie, the gods turned his arm into a thunderbolt, right? Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have neuro coffee in hand, and it is perfect. Okay. Well, I hope everyone had a successful Memorial Day weekend and you celebrated appropriately and remembered the heroes as we should. Um, digging into today's Q&A, we, we had a busy week. We had to dig right into this. Had a great Q&A with Jen and Jen works with professional baseball pitchers. Big concern there is how do we manage relative motions in regards to force production. How much do we need to restore? And this is a really important point that we made during the conversation is that we have to look at these people as N equals one. Uh, because while there are certain things that all pitchers have to do, they will, they will achieve their outcomes um, very specifically to their idiosyncratic structure and ranges of motion. 
And so this was a this was a, a big concept that we talked about. We also talked about uh, key performance indicators, and then um, how we look at the different ways that they do produce internal and external rotation. So again, it's very idiosyncratic. Um, so again, great conversation with Jen. Thank you so much uh, for your participation there. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and put 15-minute consultation in the subject line so I don't delete it. We will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Um, don't forget to go to the YouTube page and subscribe there as well so you can go back and look at all of these videos that go way back a couple years now. All right, so got to run. Busy Tuesday. You guys have a great day. I'll see you tomorrow. The clock has started. Jen, what is your question? Great. So yeah, my question comes to, you know, when it comes to performance and generating force, how do you determine when restoring some level of relative motion is beneficial versus not? Does it depend on the sport, right? Like a um, um, power lifter versus, you know, baseball athlete? Does it depend on the individual? Obviously KPI. And maybe to give you a little bit more context, um, I, I work primarily with pitchers. And so this one particular pitcher, he's in the major leagues, quite efficient at what he does. He serves 98, yep. but not considered a good mover um, from a traditional sense. Yep. He uh, appears to be at end game, straight leg raise at 40 degrees bilaterally, hip flexion at 80, hip IR 510 if I'm being generous, bilaterally, hip ER at about 40. Uh, in the past, has dealt with some low back tightness, no kidding, um, bicycle tendinopathy. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if I'm right here in my thinking, like he's clearly minimized these relative motions to be able to generate a lot of force, but by doing so has created a great deal of focal loads at these tissues. Mm -hmm. uh, also doesn't seem very efficient in that he's a very kind of linear in his delivery versus rotational. And is he so I wonder is he, is he real tall? tall? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Four. So he should, so he should, he should, he should appear to be more linear in his delivery because he's got more rotational capability than somebody that's wider. He's right. still turning. He's still turning, right. but he turns. So, so, so here's, here's the, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt her, but I got a little excited no. there when I found out he's tall. Um, so, so when, when, a, when, when you have a taller, narrower human being, their turn is much tighter. And so they, mm -hmm. so their delivery is definitely more in a straight line. Is he left-hander? No, he's right. Okay. Okay. That I, I'm good. Cause I lefties are a little, a little odd, but not, not terribly. Um, but, but, but just in, in generally speaking, it's like, you're going to see this more straight line delivery um, in, in many of those cases. And so then you think about what is going to be the strategy to keep that turn as tight as possible. So it is as straight a line as possible as he's delivering the delivering to home play. Mm -hmm. um, when you define somebody as not a good mover that throws 98 miles an hour in the major leagues, um, I don't know that that's an appropriate way to express that because he's doing exactly what he is being paid <laughs> to do, right? Fair. So, so, so what, what we're talking about is specificity, and then we're looking at his strategy to achieve the desired outcome. Um, I'll let you in on a little dirty little secret. Um, mm -hmm. Simone Biles, arguably mm -hmm. the greatest gymnast that has ever lived, um, if you were to measure her, I have no doubt in my mind, never measured her, but I've measured enough gymnasts to know that they're not always great movers either. They're very, very good at certain things that's, mm -hmm. that make them stand out in their sport, right? But when we compare them to averages, they, they, they fall way off the chart. And so we can't look at this guy as mm -hmm. an average human being because he is not. The, the gods right. 
as they say in the movie, the gods turned his arm into a thunderbolt, right? And right. so so we have to look at him as an individual. So you're absolutely right. N equals one is in play right, right mm -hmm. here. Um, KPIs, absolutely. But here's the thing that, that a lot of people don't recognize um, is that when we're talking about performance, and, and again, we're talking about something that's really, really specific here, is, is his KPI is gonna be different than, than, than someone else's. His ability to generate force is gonna be a little bit different from someone else's. There's a lot of things that are the same when we're talking about pitchers, but we have to treat them as individuals because you just don't know. Mm -hmm. um, and so you got a guy that, that really knows how to, to reduce relative motion, which get, makes him a high force producer. And he's gotta do it over the smallest increment of time possible. Mm -hmm. Now, another thing to keep in mind is, is you're using normal average comparison table tests, okay? Sure. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that he doesn't produce internal rotation and that doesn't mean that he doesn't produce external rotation. It just means he doesn't produce it in the place that you're used to measuring based on averages. Okay. Right. okay, so chances are, when you look at, it's like, he's got hardly any hip internal rotation. Awesome. He's still jamming force into the ground. This is why I define internal rotation as a downward force, because that's where right. it goes, right? Mm -hmm. So so he's got a way, and you'll know better than I will, because you've, you've measured him directly. He's got a way to produce that force into the ground. He does it very, very quickly. And then he also has a way to produce the ER. Mm -hmm. the concern that you have is where is he doing this? And I and you've already expressed that. You go, is he doing it in his tissues? Most likely he is. And then it's your job to say, okay, this is where I think we're okay. Here's where I think I need to step in. And the mm -hmm. only way, the only way you're ever gonna know is to train him. Mm -hmm. Because you just have to get to know this person. Because while there are, you know, physiologically, there are certain elements within a baseball pitch that have to occur. His physical structure is going to determine how he does it and right. when he does it. Right. That's why we all don't get to throw 98 miles an hour in the major leagues, is because right. he's different. I mean, he, like he found he found what he was good at. He found a way to do it. And then mm -hmm. your job, no pressure here, right? Right. Your right. job is to make sure that his superpower doesn't come back to destroy him because it will. It will. Mm -hmm. Right, he's he's had a couple of things going on where he goes, okay, the low back gets tight. You get the little biceps load, okay. So so basically, right. when you get the biceps load, you know you've got a deceleration issue there, right? Mm -hmm. And so so again, you have to kind of figure out it's like, okay, how does he do these things? You know he's going to have a max propulsion in there, mm -hmm. has to has to. Mm -hmm. You know he's going to have to have a demonstration of external rotation somewhere because that kind of velocity does not show up in internal rotation. Okay, mm -hmm. he was a power lifter with sustained, sustained propulsion where there's no mm -hmm. time constraint, right? Mm -hmm. um, it'll show up very, I mean, it'll be identified very, very easily. But in his case, um, you're probably just gonna have to look at some, I mean, I'm, I know you guys would have it, you'll have the high speed videos and, mm -hmm. and all that, that that you can kind of look at and you say, okay, here's where this is happening. This is where I need to monitor. And that's gonna guide you in your process. So, so looking at, um he gets quite a significant anterior pelvic orientation. So that's probably his downward force and, and potentially where some of the low back discomfort may be coming from. Right, so, so he hits the ground with his lead foot. Right? Yeah. And, and, and that's where, that's where the, the early to max propulsion is gonna come from, right? Right. So that energy travels up through him and then you get to decide, it's like, okay, how much of this are we allowing, right? Because mm -hmm. 
I, and it kind of you, you stated this in, in email. It's like it's like if you restore too much relative motion, do you destroy his superpowers? Absolutely. That's entirely possible. Ah. Yeah. Now it all it, and it's going to depend. So he's on a he's a major league pitcher, so he's on a five day rotation. Yeah. About yeah. Yeah. So yeah. they're typically on a five day. Okay. Um, and so what you're going to find is here's what I would do is I would measure the bejesus out of him. Um, throughout that five day cycle, because it's gonna mm -hmm. give you clues as to where and when you need to intervene to sort of give him a little bit more relative motion and then expect it to disappear as he, right. as he reaches the okay. point where he's going to perform at, at his maximum capabilities. And so what you're gonna see is you're gonna see this little cycle appear as to, mm -hmm. oh, okay. So, and, and you've measured these guys after they throw, I'm assuming, right? Yes. So, yeah. so you know how everything just kind of disappears and absolutely, yeah. yeah it makes you feel like exactly. you're not making any progress with people, but at the same time, it's you know you're they're, you're giving them maybe a little bit, but then they're using you know what they need and going back. But right. so there's this give and take and the fine line of of what that is. Absolutely. So 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 now you you can but what you can do, like I said, you you measure these guys over time, and then you sort of get to know them. You say, okay, so if if uh, and I, whether he's a starter, whether he's not, I'm going to treat him like a starter. So let's just say he throws he throws. 100 pitches, six innings, something along those lines, right? And then you have this expectation of what you should see in your in your table tests. And then you say, okay, I'm going to give you back a bunch today to, mm -hmm. to promote the recovery, you know, th that process so we can get that started. But I, what I'm going to say is like on day two, it's going to be this. On day three, it's going to be this. On day four, it's going to be this. Uh -huh. And then day five, I'm going to know that you're going to be prepared. It would be like um, when you work with sprinters, um, mm -hmm. they don't have a lot of interim rotation either. Um, mm -hmm. because their their ground contact time is is so brief it's like well think about a baseball pitch so you're like seven to nine thousand degrees per second of of of, of arm speed right mm -hmm. that's faster than sprinters right mm -hmm. and so, so this is a really 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 kind of a, a fast thing so so the amount of internal rotation that they end up with is very very little um so if i get if i had a sprinter that showed up one day and they have like 40 degrees of internal rotation, I start to get worried because it's like, this guy's not ready to run mm -hmm. his best race because mm -hmm. that's a lot of, that's gonna be a lot of energy that's gonna be distributed to managing position. Whereas, right. you know, it's like, you know, you take your, your, your pitcher and you say, you know, maybe I don't want full internal rotation on game day. Right? right. But but by looking at him over a long enough period of time, I can say that, okay, we're in this range where I think you're gonna do really, really well, right? Mm -hmm. Don't tell him because they're, they're you yeah, totally. <laughs> them, right. But, but again, but you'll know, so, so you'll know what to monitor and, and when, and then if you do see some sort of deficit in performance that shows up, cause they, it always happens, right? There's so sure. many things that are unpredictable when sure. during the execution, you know, of, of the game itself. It's like, mm -hmm. but when you see certain things start to show up and then you can, you can like stick your nose and you go, Hey, you might want to monitor the next 10 pitches here. And if it doesn't start to come back, you probably want to think about you know pulling this guy or you say he's doing great everything is exactly where we want it let him go kind of a thing and then you then you provide a really useful and powerful influence so let me ask you this in a picture like that um who clearly has more focal loads on tissues would it behoove like a, a front office to use a picture like that in more of like a reliever setting with a workload maybe a little bit less versus a starting pitcher that's a, that's a, that's again, that's a really tough call because I think that, I think you have to kind of rely on, on um, the consistency of, of behaviors that you're going to, that you're going to identify. I think you're, that your 
again, you have, you have a very powerful influence here when it comes to decisions like that, because you're the one that spends the time with them. You're the one that gets to know them, whereas the front office is taking this, you know, this 20,000 foot view of the team and they're saying, okay, what fits best under these circumstances? And so you get to have that conversation with those people and you say, you know, so-and-so is doing really, really well under these circumstances. And again, it's like, if you have enough data over time and you can, again, our predictions are lousy, let's sure. not worry about those, but we do have tendencies that we can say, hey, you know, under these circumstances, you did really, really well. That might be a consideration. Okay. And then so, what about um, a pitcher that it's still in the developmental process, he's in the, our minor league system and maybe presents in a similar fashion, could we potentially try and give him more relative motion? He's a longer runway to maybe then utilize those new motions, learn a new delivery and thoughts there. And then maybe you extend a career. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. But again, you know, the process, I, I always look at this as, as this process that doesn't change because mm -hmm. we're still gonna do the same thing. We're still gonna accumulate data. We're still gonna look for the, for the KPIs. Right. And, and he's going to eventually show us what what his needs are. But you're right. You do have developmental time here. So your experiment is a lot. You have a much mm -hmm. broader time for for safe to fail experiments here where you can just say, OK, let's let's put him in this situation. Let's give him this and then let's just see how he performs, because what you might do is unlock something that's really, really important. So right. you know, I, I, I work with a lot of guys out, out in Arizona and, and they work with a lot of baseball guys too. And then, you know, you give these guys a little bit of something and right. then they, they, yeah. they, they tap into two, three miles per hour, which gets them a better look. Right. And, and right. Or, or you buy them more pitches per appearance. Holy mm -hmm. cow, it's like little things like that. When, when you're in those developmental um, stages, really powerful because like I said you do have the time mm -hmm. okay very very helpful very helpful um well I think you're already on it I I, I think you kind of knew the answers before we started talking you know you you just needed somebody else to say yeah you're on point 10. no I, absolutely you're, you're yeah. on I I don't I doubt you for that. a second I don't doubt you for I, a second <laughs> I appreciate that how are we doing on time we're good keep going okay all right okay so as far as um, strategies for this particular player, we've I've utilized rolling patterns, lazy bear positions, so on and so forth. It, it kept it within you know um, that sort of kind of easier uh, activities for him. Yep. Tried to sprinkle that in through his lifts um, as well, um, using his lifts almost like a recovery strategy versus adding more load to the system. Correct. He's already a good go. compressor. He's already right. a good compressor. It's like, so, so this, this is going to come turn into one of these conversations about, oh, he just needs to get stronger kind of thing. No. Yeah. Okay. No, I, th I think his force production is not, is not your greatest concern right now. I think, I think that again, looking at his numbers, um, he's already great at that. Um, I mean, it, it, what, what is it worth? Is it worth trying to chase higher force production for somebody that already throws, you know, it, in the, he's probably top 1% velocity you know, already in, in the major right. league. It's like, okay, what is the advantage there? It's like, did you just steal 20 pitches from his next appearance, you right. know, or did you, did you buy him, you know, a faster recovery and then getting ready for the next game? It's like, that's right. that again, that's your experiment. But, but I would say that, that, yeah, it was like, when you got this guy in the, in the, uh, the weight room, I think, I think the strategy is to make sure you don't 
take away something, right? right? And then just make sure that he has everything that he needs. And again, your data is going to tell you. It's like, what are his numbers? When when does he look the best? You know, mm -hmm. you you compare his 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 uh, his bullpens, and mm -hmm. and uh, then you, like I said, you just track him over time, and and he'll start to show you what he needs to do. Absolutely, excellent. Well, I appreciate your time. I'll say I'll save. Very my, very welcome. It's always fun to talk coaches. about this kind of stuff. Definitely wonderful. Thanks, Bill. All right, I'll see you later, Jay. Because the advantage of the wide assays have is the the angles at which the the musculature associated with their with their uh, skeleton, like their their rib cage and their pelvis, is generally more horizontal. Tremendous advantage for for force output. Good morning, happy Wednesday. I have neural coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right. Well, today is Wednesday. That means that tomorrow is Thursday, which means that we have the Coffee and Coaches Conference call tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. Please join us. These groups have been great. The calls have been awesome. Really enjoying these. We will continue them, um, but again, uh, please join us 6 a.m. tomorrow. Um, today's Q&A comes from Anthony. Anthony asked a question um, at askbillhartman at gmail.com. Askbillhartman at gmail.com. Um, in regards to uh, bench press. So he was he actually watched some of the recent calls that I did with with Ben. So so Ben works with a lot of powerlifters. So we talked a lot of powerlifting. And Anthony came in and he says, hey, is there anything that you can do to help me with my bench press arch? Well, guess what, Anthony? We sort of answered this question almost a year ago. So I went back into the archives, dug it up for you. And so I'm gonna replay that for you. Um, this morning, as I think you'll you'll find it useful um, to answer your question. Just keep in mind, just keep in mind that that as we try to gain performance in powerlifting, and especially using some of the things that I've mentioned in this video, there are secondary consequences that you're going to have to pay attention to. So please take that into consideration. Okay, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute uh, consultation, please go to askbillhartman@gmail.com. AskBillHartman at gmail.com and put a uh, 15 minute consultation in the subject line and we'll arrange that at our mutual convenience. Otherwise, I will see you tomorrow morning, 6 a.m. on the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Have a great Wednesday. Um, so, so Rena says, uh, this is more of a powerlifting related question. What strategies, both breathing and postural, can those with narrow and wide ISAs use to maximize thoracic extension in the bench press as it relates to the rib cage? This is mostly regarding the setup to execute the lift. Any info on the role of ISAs and proper bench press execution would be much appreciated, actually. Okay, so now we get to, to take this concept and what we're gonna do is we're gonna physically shape somebody into a position that's going to increase bench press performance. So let's talk about powerlifting in general first and foremost. So powerlifting is about force production under very, very heavy loads. There's no time constraint, essentially, um, like we would see like with the Olympic weightlifting has a time constraint because of the, the technique that has to be used. So if you can grind out a, a bench press in 10 seconds, so be it. Um, as long as you complete the lift, that's all that matters. Very, very strong, strong, strong exhalation strategies. Very, very high levels of concentric orientation. So we want to minimize eccentric orientation as much as possible, only enough to allow sufficient movement to be accessible to execute the lift. So high levels of range of motion actually can be detrimental under these circumstances. So if we can steal some, some range of motion, it actually allows us 
uh, greater efficiency. We can, we can put more effort into the lift itself and stay in a groove um, because again, if we, if we uh, create a situation that physically limits our range of motion, then all that energy that we would normally have to use to control the position, we don't have to worry about. Now there's secondary consequences, which we'll talk about, but, but, but for right now, let's talk performance. So what we want to do, regardless of your, of your physical structure, so we talk about narrows and wides, what we want to do is create as much anterior posterior compression as possible because the stronger the exhalation strategy, the greater the force output into the extremities and then the more weight that I can lift. Now there's a subtle difference between wides and narrows. So with the wides, you're going to want to emphasize uh, the latissimus dorsi element of, of this, this posterior compression. So we're talking about below the level of T8. So we're talking about bilateral symmetrical lifts like barbell rows and lat pull downs being staples for, for the wide ISAs because what we want to do is we want to create as much compression on the posterior aspect of that rib cage. Because the advantage that the wide ISAs have is the, the angles at which the, the musculature associated with their, with their uh, skeleton, like their, their rib cage and their pelvis, is generally more horizontal. Tremendous advantage for, for force output in things like a bench press or a squat or a deadlift. So if we can compress that lower posterior part of, of the rib cage, you immediately increase your arch, you immediately increase your compressive strategy, you immediately increase the amount of weight that you can, that you can lift. With a narrow, they tend to have greater expansion in the upper back compared to the wides. And so what we want to do is we want to emphasize more of the upper back type of, of compressive strategies that you would see associated with bilateral symmetrical face pulls, I's, T's, and Y's. Okay, so there's the subtle difference now. They'll still do lat pull downs and they'll still do um, their rowing in a bilateral symmetrical manner, but we're talking about emphasis as far as the subtleties between, between structures. Um, the wides are also going to probably benefit a lot more from, from doing the, uh, the back extension type of things or, or reverse hypers because what they have to do to actually maximize their arching capabilities in the bench press but also to carry over to the other lifts is they have to close the lower posterior aspect of the pelvis as well, just like the lower posterior rib cage. On the, on the narrow side of things, um, they're going to want to do things that are more associated with like a glute bridge or the, the barbell hip thrusting thing because what that does is it, is it compresses the back side of the pelvis. So we get a pelvis that, that instead of being nice and round like this, we want to flatten it out as much as possible. So your, your glute bridges and, and hip thrusts with your knees up, uh, apart um, will actually help compress that strategy right there. And now you, you've got compression where you typically would have expansion in a narrow. And, and so again, the goal here is to maximize the performance regardless of health, increase the arching capabilities in a bench press. Now, let's state the obvious. Don't forget to bench press um, because you gotta practice the position because it's very, very specific. And so all you have to do is get on YouTube, watch a bunch of videos about it, and you'll see a, a bunch of high-level powerlifters getting into the position, practice, practice, practice. The better you get at that, the more compressive strategy that you're going to get. The bench press itself is a compressive exercise. So let's not ignore the specificity. Um, in regards to some of your other training, the sumo pulls, um, cross bench pullovers, a good old classic. So drop your hips below the level of the bench, arch backwards over the bench and perform your pullovers. Another great compressive exercise. Now, secondary consequences. Here's the bad stuff. You're going to lose range of motion. Okay. Now, on, on a certain level, 
that's performance enhancing. Like I said, it's gonna keep you in your groove, it's gonna improve your efficiency in the, in the big lifts, but the secondary consequences of losing that range of motion is you're gonna create a bunch of compressive strategies. So you're more likely to see a bunch of soft tissue injuries because the concentric orientation associated with the, the compressive strategies will reduce blood flow to key areas like connective tissues and bone and things like that. And so that's why you're gonna see a lot of the soft tissue injuries that you see in, in powerlifters. That's why you're gonna see the, the progressive arthritic conditions in, in powerlifters. So the thing that I want you to understand is, yes, I'm talking about performance. Yes, I'm intentionally compressing you. And, and yes, you're gonna increase your powerlifting performance, but there is going to be consequences that are going to compromise your health in the long term. So please keep those in mind. You get to be an adult, you get to make all of your own decisions here. But the reality is, is that the harder you drive yourself into these positions, the more likely you are to experience the negative secondary consequences associated with high levels of concentric orientation over prolonged periods of time and exhalation strategies, which could compromise who knows how many different levels of health. Rena, I hope that answers your question for you. It gives you a lot to think about. Um, make good decisions, and I will see you guys. To oh, coaches and and coffee uh, tomorrow morning, Thursday morning, 6 a.m. Don't forget that, and I will see you guys. Things are not always as they seem. So you have a precursor question that you have to ask them mm -hmm. before you do that activity. What would that be? Uh, it's, I mean, usually I like to ask them, make sure just how like sensitive their lower back is so that I, and then whether or not they can, they're comfortable on their sides or whatnot. There you go. That's the question you have to ask. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so classic subjective uh, questioning from, from physical therapy school, Jordan, here you go. Somebody walks in with shoulder pain, right? One of the questions you always ask somebody is like, can you lay on that side? Okay. Now, why do you ask them if they can lay on that side? So I can roll them onto it? Well, yeah, because, because exactly. So, so if, if I have somebody, think about this for a sec. <clears throat> if I have somebody that can't lay on their left side, mm -hmm. okay? And I, I, I throw them on the table and, and they measure and, they, and they, they, they can't, they don't have any AP expansion on that side, okay? So, so they're, they're, they're more compressed AP on the left side than they are on the right side. Now, think about that shape laying on its side where the narrow side of, the, of the, the thorax is pointing down into the table and the rounder side is up. Mm -hmm. They're laying on a point. That's why they don't like to lay on their shoulder because they can't create the, the AP expansion shape change to even lay on their side. It's a, it's a dead giveaway for somebody that has AP compression. Camilla, you just got another test. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah point, pointy stuff hurts. Yeah. So, so okay. Uh, anybody ever have, uh, how many therapists do we have on the, on the call? Give me, give me like a, a wave or a thumbs up. Okay. Anybody ever have somebody come in with a, a horrible, miserable diagnosis that they always give these people of, of uh, uh, trochanteric bursitis? Hmm. Trochanteric bursitis is a shape change problem. Okay, they can't lay on their side because it hurts right on the greater trochanter because it's pointing into the table because they have AP compression. They have a hip socket that's pointing straight into the table. They are laying directly on top of a bone. 
right they don't they don't have the shape change right right they, they tell you what's going on by by their descriptions but see nobody ever told you why you have to ask these questions because the the representative model was like oh you have a bursitis mm-hmm. right and then the doc pokes on their hip and they go oh that's kind of sensitive because they've been standing that way too so do you think there's any any pressure laterally into the the soft tissue structures of the hip when your AP compressed on one side expanded on the other yeah there's there's continuous tension there that makes sense too I guess like why when they go to lay on their shoulders and it like is a totally different shape that they take when they lay on one side than the other they're like I can get my arm like right here and then on the other side they're like on top of it and they're next to the side and yeah okay yeah they can't they can't lay like this but they can lay like that yeah yeah. 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 Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. How about that? That's awesome. So if they can't lay like this, Cameron, what 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 shoulder motion are they lacking? If they can't, then they're lacking they ER and yes. See, yeah. see how simple this is? It's like crazy simple, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All there right. you go. There you go, Camilla. There's your ER test for shoulder. Can you lay on your side and support your head? See? <laughs> see how easy this is? You just got to understand what the representations are. Okay. Because, uh, you know, I, I see, you know, I've seen in, in other sports as well, like strong men, if you're trying to pick up a stone, like a yep. big round stone, yep. um, there's, there's no, almost no way you're going to do that with a flat back. Um, nope. So, you know, so you see guys that are able to lift, you know, 200, 300, 400 pound stones, yep. with, you know, with a flex spine. So hang on. So, so. So let's talk about this this very specific movement for a second because it will it will coincide with what you were just talking about from the Grekovetsky book. Okay, so when he's talking about storage and release of energy with the with the flex spine, that's how you pick up a stone. Mm-hmm. Okay, now are you are you at the end range? Hopefully not, because now because when you get to the end range and you think about the more sensitive structures that would be exposed as the yielding structures. But that's literally, so, so when you see somebody pick up a stone and they sit the stone on their lap, they re-grasp, right? And then they, and they come up fairly quickly in most circumstances, right? So what they're actually doing is they're using the, they're using the yield and, and the overcome, the, the elastic recoil within the, the axial skeleton to pick that stone up. That's why they use that technique because it's, it's incredibly efficient, right? Um, and, and again, that's exactly what Grakovetsky is talking about. It's typically, if done really, really well, so you get somebody that, that's high level strongman, um, they are very, very skilled in, in that. And so they're not really, expo- I mean, again, heavy loads always expose you to risk, right? But they are minimizing it by, by being very efficient under those circumstances. And um, it was just fun to play around applying your model to what I saw. But one thing I was curious about, one of my lab partners, they were doing the, the scratch behind. And I saw the head like deviate towards that involved arm. Uh-huh. And my idea was when the spinous process turns that way, it's compression. But this is like external rotation. Well, it's not. Is it? Am I getting my cervical motion? Hang on. So, so here you go. Here, Camilla, are you paying attention? Is this okay? Camilla, you paying attention? Are you on? 
Okay. Yes, yes, Pat. yes, yes, I am. Yes, okay, sorry. I see you, Pat, but I don't see you. All right, so Jordan, you ever see me do the, the back to wall flexion test? Uh, yeah, okay, so hang on. So, so here's what I want you to do. Keep your hand, in, keep your, your extremity in what would be represented as ER as far as you possibly can, okay? Mm -hmm. Go, 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 go. It's okay, you don't, don't worry about screwing it up. Okay, now, what direction do you have to turn the shoulder to scratch the other shoulder blade? Oh, it's internal rotation, isn't it? Oh. Oh, crap. So it's, oh, yeah. Oh, that's why, that's why you saw what you saw, because they were internally rotating. It's not external rotation. <laughs> yep. Okay. It's like, it's like an overhead press. It's like a pre It's a position that you would use to get into an overhead press, which is internal rotation up there, isn't it? That was my next follow-up, like shoulder flexion. You see that all the time. But yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, so the world's strongest powerlifter does not want to move. He moves the least amount possible. He releases the least amount of 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 concentric orientation. Good morning. Happy Friday. I have neural coffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Looking forward to a great weekend. Next weekend, we got the intensive 12 people uh, coming in. So looking forward to that. Um, little housekeeping. Uh, we're going to announce the intensive 13 attendees by tomorrow evening, by Saturday evening. So going through the blind reads of those applications right now, selecting out people. So if you've applied, um, be looking for that in your email box, uh, like I said, tomorrow evening. All right, um, today's Q&A is another segment from yesterday's call. We had a great call yesterday, great questions. Um, this one came from, from Matt, and Matt was breaking down the squat, and so we, we went through each of the propulsive phases during the squat and how um, other things can influence like magnitude of load and, and, and such, but we threw in a sneaky little test in there to help you identify some, some things as to what people's movement capabilities may be by utilizing the squat. So this is going to be a really useful, useful segment for a lot of people. Um, if you would like to participate in a 15-minute consultation, please contact me at askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Put 15-minute consult in the subject line so we don't delete it, and we will arrange that at our mutual convenience. Everybody have an outstanding weekend, and I will see you next week. Hi, Bill. Hey, John. I'm doing well. I'm, oh, there you are. <laughs> How are you going? I'm great. Oh, good. That's the uh, first time I've had the op opportunity to have a chat to you, so it's uh, it's nice to see you. And I've been like a uh, kid in a bakery uh, looking at your stuff online. I can't decide what I want to eat first, so uh, it's been quite overwhelming. I'm sorry. I just... <laughs> That was awesome. Okay. <laughs> Go okay. ahead. <laughs> so I'll get to it. I'll get to it. I'll get to a question. I'm uh, stewing all this stuff over in my mind and, and I'm having a little bit of a difficulty understanding um, the stages of propulsion in the squat because my understanding of it is so far, based on what I've been seeing, is that we start the squat in late, we move to middle, and then we uh, the bite base of the squat we're at early. Now, is that is that correct to start with? That is correct. So, so, so the the thing you got to look at, Matt, is is what's going on. Like the, the best representation of this is at the sacrum, 
yeah. as far as as far as understanding the representations. So if you look at if you look at sacral uh, orientation um, at the at the beginning of the squat because you're standing, so we're always biased in standing. You're going to be biased more towards the the compression at the base of the sacrum. So the base of the sacrum is going to get going to going to be pushed forward. But we want to have the 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 ER representation because we're going to move into a position that's going to be very, very strongly internally rotated as you pass through the middle range. So the sticking point is where you produce the greatest amount of force. And so that's going to be where you're internally rotated. So, so we use the internally rotated representations for force production. ER can't do it. Um, people that try to do it in ER usually have discomfort. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I look, I, um, I, I kind of get the I, I, I kind of get the ER to IR to ER concept and 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 how that goes. Where I'm having a little bit of difficulty reconciling it is that when we hit the bottom of the squat and I look at the tibial angle uh, relative to the foot. Yeah. Um, normally in early we yeah. you know if we look at it in gait we've got it orientated the opposite way. So I'm just curious about how that you know, whether that's kind of an anomaly in that circumstance or. Okay. So I'm going to give you, is Camilla, are you listening? Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm still here. All right. Matt, dirty little secret. You ready? Yeah. If you have somebody that's, that sits down into a deep squat, the tibia moves forward over the foot. Okay. Yeah. They get to the bottom of the squat and the tibia doesn't move backwards. So it stays forward over the foot. Right. You got somebody that does not hit early propulsion. When somebody okay. deep squats, when somebody deep squats and the sacrum is, is moving with its relative motions. So you start in yep. late, you start in late, you go to middle, you hit the bottom in early, the tibia has to move backwards as right. the sacrum moves backwards. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. I, I get, I, I get what you. I get, I, I get the picture. I just, I keep thinking in my mind. I see a picture of like an Olympic weightlifter catching a, you know, a really deep position and you know, okay. forward so, travel. Yeah. So, so you you change the environment a little bit, okay? Yeah. Um. And so, how how early do you think that they're ever going to get with a heavy load? Cause I have to produce yeah. a lot of force. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm talking about, I'm talking about somebody that can move through a full excursion of a squat right. with, with nothing other than body weight load. Okay. As, okay. They, yeah. as they go through, as they go through the sticking point, you're going to see the tibia go forward. Okay. Yeah. Guess what else is tipping forward? Second. Uh, yes. After the wall. Uh, yes. Right? Yes, that is absolutely correct. Yep. So sacrum tilts forward, tibia goes forward. I hit the bottom of the squat. Sacrum counternutates. Guess what the tibia does? It follows it back. Yeah, right. That's okay. how you know when you're watching somebody squat whether they have relative motion in the sacrum. So realistically, once we get so so we're looking at uh, you know I don't know a powerlifting style squat or something of that nature, like a heavy barbell back squat, we're never actually really going to get into a position where we see 
uh, uh, early occur because they're going to they're going to finish somewhere around max P or just below, uh, just below at late middle and then yeah. punch back up again. But the the greater the magnitude of load, you're going to lose the two ends. So we talk about the two ends being your ER representations, right? So yes. let's just say the early is here, late is here, and middle is here. Okay, as as I put more and more weight on the bar. There's your excursion. Yeah. So, so the st world's strongest powerlifter does not want to move. He moves the least amount possible. He releases the least amount of, of, of concentric orientation to allow him to execute a lift because there are rules that he has to follow. You have to move through an excursion of space, right? And he releases the least amount to allow that to happen. Everything, he's trying to stay as concentrically oriented as possible the whole time. If that's the case, you are trying to stay as close to max P at all times. Yeah. So you're gonna lose the excursion. So, so, now, so, so now, let's think this through on somebody that's just doing a body weight squat, okay? So they appear to go through a decent excursion of range of motion in their squat. And you watch them and you see the tibia go forward, okay? And they get down to the bottom of their squat, tibia doesn't come back. Their body weight might be too much to allow them to capture the counter-nutated position because they have to re-expand at the bottom, right? But if my body weight is enough that I have to keep pushing, guess what? I'm gonna stay compressed. And, and that's okay if that's if that's the intention. If if relative motion is my goal, now maybe I need to put them in a in a lightened atmosphere that allows them to capture those things. So Camilla, you, when you use your squat, now you know how to how to assess relative motion in the pelvis just by watching a squat. Watch the tibia. It's a secret. Don't tell anybody. So would another limiting factor in regards to not seeing that. Uh, presentation where we, we we don't ever capture that early at the bottom of the squat. Uh, when you see someone that's quite strong, they tend not to be able to squat very easily with no weight on their back, for instance. And yeah. so, yeah, you, you get that the, the, the ER field has been reduced so significantly because of the loads that they're accustomed to carrying, tissues right. are tight, et cetera, et cetera. So it, would that be another reason that you wouldn't see that early appear as you're, as you're describing there? Because they simply don't get it's not there. extent. It's not there. Yeah. It doesn't exist, right? So, and this is, this is a byproduct of, of, of increased force production, right? As I gain the capacity to compress more. So that would be hypertrophy, right? Or, or the coordination of compression, right? So I can coordinate the intermuscular coordination. I will give up expansion. I mean, I, yeah. at, at some point in time, the, the best of the best will do this, right? There might be exceptions to the rule where somebody actually has great relative motions and they are the strongest person in the world, but I would think it'd be pretty, pretty rare. But yeah, you're, you're just, they just don't have the space anymore to allow them to, to capture the ER positions, but they don't care, right? They just want to lift heavy things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Been there, done sense. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, tell tell Lalo too that uh, I was listening to his Osgood Slatter story, and uh, I'm 47 years old and have had Osgood Slatter since I was a kid, and I can still squat 500 pounds. So tell him that his mate will be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> there you go.
Love you. it. Love well, it. Thank, thank you. you. You're welcome, man.